<laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Melissa. And uh, just because of my inability to understand anything musical, Pastor Weiler said, that's a ukulele. So maybe someone else didn't know as well. Um, very well done. We are children of God, folks. And just to think of what God went through to redeem us, not only in the cross, but what He continues to go through um, in stimulating us to take the gospel forth. And as Jim shared earlier, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. In some of these places, people are condemned in their own sins, and they need to hear about Christ. And uh, through the church, the message is being proclaimed. We need to strive ever more to do that. And it brings, I thank you to Jim and Sandy for being here, it brings a certain seriousness. I didn't anticipate today necessarily. You know, you, you write out your message, you anticipate how it will be perceived, how you will uh, word things, and the inflection you'll use. And uh, it, it really draws us back to the uh, seriousness of what God has us doing. And he mentioned to me uh, during the music as well, he, he had forgotten to bring up... Uh, he lives with, near one of his sons. The daughter Crystal is in Niger. He has another son that is in Southeast Asia. He can't even give us the location. That's Scott. Because it's a closed country and it's so dangerous. And he said he wanted to thank us for praying him back into the mission field as well. So, so remember Scott and uh, as we uh, continue to worship today. It is a serious thing. With that said, does anybody remember where we left off last week? Tarshish, Tarshish, that's right, something about Tarshish. You know, it's one of those names that we struggle with in the pronunciation. I mean, pronunciation, right? <laughs> the correct pronunciation, pronunciation is probably Tarshish. Uh, though we read it in English, most of the time it just looks like Tarshish. And uh, that, that's a similar situation with Nineveh. Alistair Begg pronounces it Nineveh. That's probably accurate. Um, you know, does it really matter? The pronunciations of these, does it really matter all that much? Of course, we don't want to purposefully uh, butcher names in the Bible, but uh, a lot of times we make a really big deal out of unfamiliar words for no reason. Um, for that reason, today I'm just going to, because uh, I'm tired of straining myself to say Tarshish, remainder of this, I'm just going to say Tarshish and Nineveh. That's, that's what it is from here on out. And when we per, uh, departed last time, we had learned that Jonah was fleeing the stage that the sovereign of the universe had set for him to play a part of. He didn't want to play, uh, play his part in calling Nineveh to repentance. So verse 3 shows us in Jonah chapter 1, it says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And if you remember, last week I was making a really big deal out of, of this location, Tarshish, but delayed in telling you why. And before I go on, I'm going to delay a little bit more, because we're going to first consider where he got on, that is the port of Joppa. Today it's, it's called the city of Jaffa or Jopha. And it's about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's where all of these supplies that we just read about came in for King Solomon. 
It's where the trees from Lebanon came in by, by raft. And they floated them into Joppa. It, it's where the gold and the ivory came in as they were building these magnificent things in Solomon's kingdom. I, I really don't think we, we, we need to read into any other point except to note historically the greatness of that kingdom that Solomon had built, the splendor that, that is renowned throughout history, that, that, that greatness to Israel was exhibited through what arrived in at the port of Joppa. What came in? Jonah is remembered for fleeing out through the port of Joppa. Uh, in a sense, he represents in a way a personification of the embarrassment that Israel was experiencing. Fleeing the promised land. Running out. No longer great. Losing the, the, uh, the splendor of what the kingdom have been. And, and Jonah the prophet, he sets his sight on Tarshish. You know, he thought this through pretty well beforehand. He wasn't just drawing straws with where he was going to go. Uh, he didn't just think to himself, you know, I'm going to go down to Joppa. I'm going to see where the boats are going there and, and, and decide from that point, you know, which place I want to go visit. No, Jonah's flight to Tarshish, it was premeditated. It was predetermined where he was going to go. Verse 3 tells us, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. That's what he did. He rose up to flee to Tarshish. After this, we see that he executes the plan. So, he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He was specifically looking for a ship that would take him to his destination. The question is, why Tarshish? Why Tarshish? The answer lies in three components. Here are three devices that Jonah uses to flee. I'm going to label them location remuneration, and duration. He wants to flee, and he's going to use these devices. Let's first consider the location. You know, last week we learned that this location of, uh, of Tarshish is uncertain, to be honest. But most historians and theologians identify this as a port city in southern Spain. It was probably the ancient city of Tartessus. If that is correct, it would take Jonah... 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh that would have been 500 miles to his east. So 2,500 miles away in ancient days. That's a long distance. Uh, it's a big deal. Has anyone here ever thought, you know what, I need to get out of a situation. I need to flee uh, the circumstances that I'm in. i got to change locations. I need to put some distance between me and what I currently face. And, and many people have had those problems of family relationships. Uh, perhaps you no longer want to endure certain family members. You, you don't want to uh, put up with people you know. You might have signed up for the Marine Corps. Said, you know what, send me to Okinawa. I just want gone. Many people have experienced this. And uh, who, who here is thinking to yourself, has tried to physically separate yourself from an undesirable circumstance? Something you don't want to be involved in. You want to flee the responsibility. Family. Work. Church. Things take a turn. You don't, you don't anticipate it. Maybe a, a close relationship has soured at some point. You know, so I'm going to find a reason 
I'm going to find a need that just have to leave. I don't, I don't want to have to work through the problem. I'm going to flee. And, and a few weeks ago, this tailor's in uh, very well with Jim. I'm listening to him speak, and I'm like, I hope I can represent these things well that will complement what he encouraged us with already. Uh, a few weeks ago, if you remember, our, our missionaries from Italy were here, Gene and Susan Coleman. And, and a number of us were able to meet with them after church for some time and, and get a, a, a more detailed update on their ministry. Very impressive, by the way. Very impressive what they're doing. The Colemans have been ministering in Italy for over three decades. I think 33 years total. That, that's a big deal in this day and age. And they have persevered. Jim was talking a lot about needing the right qualities for people to persevere. And how hard it is to find those, those qualities today. And, and uh, the Colemans had experienced a number of young missionaries that, that would come and go over the decades. They'd come in, they'd be gone. And uh, that Sunday, my sermon message was titled, Global Missions. What we need to do as a church for global missions. And uh, uh, I emphasize that, that, in the message I emphasize that there's a need for every church to identify and train people for missions. Identify them, train them, people who will be faithful, people who will be sent out from your own church. Church with our blessing, we know who they are, we recognized uh, uh, how they've persevered through things, through challenges. They're tested. And, and you lay hands on them and say, we're sending them out. These are people that we know. People that we trust. And, and Gene Coleman later shared how he appreciated our concern for that in preparing missionaries through the church. And he said that, that over those 33 years in Italy... Um, He'd seen a lot of missionaries, uh, quite a significant number, come and go and not last very long. Some had no ongoing church relationship, he noted. And uh, they may have had Christian parents. Um, they might have gone to Christian college. Their Christian college, they might have gotten uh, motivated to go into the mission field. They might have found an agency that would send them into the mission field. And uh, there when you arrive... Uh, most of us, myself included, don't understand. I was in a, in a missionary environment, domestic in the U.S. Way different. When you start going to Italy and then to Africa and Southeast Asia, the, 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 uh, the struggles that you're going to run into are enormous. And uh, when it came essential for some of these, these younger missionaries to come in that hadn't been trained uh, they'd have to come in they'd have to learn to work coordinated with a team environment uh, they'd have to work under enormous stress They're facing the spiritual battle like none of us experience here in the united states uh all by entering a new culture and a new language that's tough stuff it's tough stuff and unfortunately very often uh gene gene lamented they'll fail they'll give up they'll flee and he was mentioning about one in particular that was there at the very time he was here, and they were going to go back, and they're, they're going to, a uh, good guy. But uh, wasn't worth it with their agency either, but he'd only been there three weeks. He's already like, I want out. I want to go home. And he said that, that, that perseverance is so necessary. Yeah, I couldn't persevere in the relationships, couldn't persevere under the stress. Uh, many of these, he said, hadn't served in a church environment. Uh, where they had to learn to compromise, work with others, work through others. 
Uh, the Christian experience, folks, it's, it's not an individual experience. It's not about me. It's about a body of Christ working through local bodies uh, to reach the lost. And when stress arises, everyone in that environment needs to learn to persevere. You know, think about it just for a second. When you think about uh, missionary biographies, you know, the, the greats, Livingston, Hudson, Hudson Taylor, and uh, Paul the Apostle, what was it, Adoniram Judson? Pastor Weiler gave an amazing presentation uh, Friday before last about Adoniram Judson and told those kids what he had to persevere through for years and years and years. And Gene Coleman shared that those who had survived a long-standing relationship with the church, those who were able to put up with other Christians over many years, had developed this stamina to put others first and to work together in the mission field. He goes, it's just amazing how the church prepares people. And, and they built the endurance to face adversity. He said, uh, it, it's such a difference uh, that, that now TEAM, uh, the organization that he is with, TEAM Missions, they won't send out anybody anymore that hasn't persevered through a church. They, they just won't be able to uh, withstand the pressures. Because you can't run from ministry, folks. Especially when you're over in Niger. You can't run from it. We can't just put space between ourselves and our last difficult experience like we do here. We need to persevere. Uh, Jonah was on the run. He wanted a new location. And uh, he thought that he could put enough physical distance between himself and his spiritual responsibility given to him by God uh, that he could just skirt it. Of course, we're going to find out in the coming verses that's the wrong answer. You can't do that as a Christian if you're one of his children, he's going to chasten you. And, and his initial prophecies that he'd given to King Jeroboam II, you know, the military success, the expansion of the kingdom, the prosperity, what he initially was called to, that, that's pretty easy stuff. Hey, king, you're going to flourish. Oh, wow, good stuff. Thanks a lot. But his new ministry now that God has called him to, uh, Nineveh, that's hard. Very, very hard. Pales in comparison. Uh, the difference. It's just, it's just, it's enormous. And, and when the difficult times come for a church, we need to remember this in America. The church, as difficult times come, they probably will. One way or another, we don't know what. God's got everything planned out for His glory in His kingdom. But, but as those troubles come, folks, are we going to persevere? Are we going to stand in the truth of God's Word? Or are we going to run? Are we going to run? My old pastor from Denton Bible, Pastor Tom, he always said, folks, assess yourself. Are you in Christ? You know, if the rapture were to come today and pull the church out, he said there'd be plenty of people here left to turn the lights out. The mark of a Christian is persevering. And Jonah's first reason for choosing Tarshish was, you know what, I just would really like a faraway location to get away from all of this. A place that wasn't as hard. wasn't as hard. That was his first device. Find a new location. His second device to escape his responsibilities, of course, we all know this is in vain. God's going to intervene. 
But he, he'd come up with this other device he'd found, and it was what I'll call re, remuneration. You know, that's, that's just a kind of a, an ancient term, not ancient, but an antiquated term for what we say um, recompense for something, payment for something, buying your way in something, being paid for something. And in effect, Jonah to some level thought his money could purchase his way out of this spiritual obligation. He thought the money would make the misery go away. Hang with me there for a moment. You see, he, he didn't, Jonah didn't want to stay physically in Israel. We've already discussed in depth you know, whether he had heard Amos, possibly Hosea, preach judgment. I, I'm convinced with fair certainty that Jonah had. Uh, those prophets both revealed Israel was under God's judgment. They both revealed that Assyria would be the vessel by which God was going to bring that judgment. Nineveh being the capital of Assyria. And, and God would accomplish His chastening to His people in severe judgment, famine, war, exile. That was looming on Israel, the northern ten tribes. That was coming. The only thing that Jonah didn't know, that he wasn't certain of, what's the timeline? When? He didn't know when, but he knew it was coming. And although Assyria had uh, been seriously weakened over the few previous decades, Jonah is now commissioned to preach to them, preach repentance. And he had that faith in the Word to, to work. Why did he have so much faith in that Word? Why? Well, Jonah knows why. He probably heard Amos' prophecy. Prophecy he was going to restore the dominance of Assyria. And he was going to use it to chasten Israel. He was very certain, Jonah was very certain by the time he preaches to Nineveh that they would not be destroyed. He was very certain of that, that they would repent. Because if God was actually preparing to destroy Nineveh in 40 days, by the way, not a long period of time, um, Israel and Jonah both so despised Assyria, they would have pulled up a front row seat. If Jonah thought there was any chance of that happening. And uh, Jonah knew there would be no ultimate calamity in Nineveh. And, and that's why he was so upset about going there. So upset about going there. Chapter 4, verse 1, the ESV puts it this way. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Right? Is this not what I said? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew they were going to be given a chance in Nineveh. But Jonah also knows that God doesn't always relent concerning disaster. God had previously destroyed numerous locations... Numerous civilizations, Noah's flood destroyed everything except eight people. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jericho, God leveled that city when Israel came through. Uh, the Amalekites, it goes on and on, the people that God has leveled. God was also said through Amos and, and Hosea, I'm about to destroy Israel too. And Israel that's carried off uh, to Assyria, those tribes, they never assemble in the same fashion again. 
they essentially disappear. It's the lower true tri- two tribes that later went to Babylon that came back in and repopulated uh, Israel in the time of Jesus. These northern ten dri- tribes, they're going to suffer judgment. It's been proclaimed. And uh, so how was Jonah then, since he'd, he knows from the Bible, there's lots of judgment where God doesn't relent. Why was he so convinced, so certain that Nineveh would be spared? And consequently, why was he so disgusted about that? Because he knew what it meant. Nineveh will be spared. Assyria will be judged. My opinion, because he heard God's word at the preaching of Amos. Conjecture. I can't prove it. Disagree with me if you like. But it all seems to fit. But Jonah didn't know the timeline. He saw the writing on the wall. Um, Six months, six years, 60 years. He didn't know. Uh, He knew it was going to happen, though. And if you don't want to live in a pagan nation, as an Israel prophet, meaning Assyria, I don't really want to be there. Those are kind of bad people. And uh, what they do and and what they believe and everything else, there's all kinds of problems, not just calling them to repent. All kinds of problems after that. And if you don't really want to be a resident in Israel, when the judgment comes through, because Assyria is going to come through uh, with their battle forces and wipe them out. So if you don't want to be a prophet who's still in Israel when that comes, you don't want to be carried off into captivity by Assyria, you'd probably better relocate yourself permanently. Permanently. And Tarshish would have been a good choice. Very wealthy and prosperous city. We know that. Um, physically, it, it is far isolated from the impending judgment that is coming on Israel. He can escape that, that region. The, the city's name apparently originates from the Semitic word, which means to smelt. Um, as we learned from our scripture reading in Second Chronicles just earlier, uh, it was a source of, ver- of many precious metals, especially refined gold. Uh, even beyond the book of Jonah, Tarshish uh, is quite familiar and quite renowned in the Bible. It, it's mentioned 21 other times in six different books of the Bible. The Bible knows about Tarshish. It, it's renowned for two things, exceeding wealth of all kinds and merchant ships. Repeatedly in virtually every context. Lots of money there, merchant ships. And, and the prophet Ezekiel later declares, this is now after the time of Jonah, Concerning the destruction of a city named Tyre, he says, Tarshish was your customer because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth. With silver, iron, tin, and lead, they paid for your wares. Tarshish had all kinds of money. Every context you look, lots of ships. Tarshish, it was the Hong Kong of the ancient world. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone who wanted to to be ambitious and prosper financially, they would have gone to Tarshish. Merchant center, trade center, money, connections, importing, exporting, contracts. It's also noteworthy that rabbinic tradition, it's always identified Jonah as being uh, quite a wealthy man. Very wealthy. uh, Though, of course, rabbinic tradition, it's not inerrant as Scripture is inerrant, uh, nonetheless, it's also not irrelevant. And it's also not always wrong. Some of the facts 
that, that we read through that uh, coincide with Scripture and, and with history and with archaeology. And it is a useful contributor indicating Jonah's motive here. Because um, we do know that Jonah has a sizable sum of money with him. We do know that. We'll get to that in a moment. But remuneration, payment, it was an issue. Jonah had a wad. That money was interfering with his loyalty to God. It was interfering with it. He thought he could buy his way out of his predicament. I'm going to get out of this. And uh, you do realize that in the Bible, money, talking about money and funds, um, it's especially difficult for people with a lot of money that are financially well off to remain faithful, to remain trusting in God. Lots of verses uh, Christ uh, is quoted as saying here, uh, about this, just one. He wasn't joking in Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Can't serve them both. So people with money have to be careful, um, because you might be tricked into, into the thinking that you know what I could just run. I could just run, and um, instead of of God getting us out of a stickler, out of difficult circumstances, and make him. Uh, see how he makes things work, uh, we might begin to think that, you know, our money can climb us out of this problem. My money can buy me out. I can get out. And, um, you know, things happen along the way. We might, might begin to think, you know, it, it doesn't really matter these relationships that I'm in right now. I can get out of them. Uh, it might be family members, co-workers at a job. It might be church uh, members. You know, it's easy to say, you know, I've got enough money. I can just sail out of here. Or uh, I can be comfortable just about anywhere. I've got enough money. I'm not tied to this place. And you know what? I don't even necessarily have to ever see these people again. Family members? Families lost? You ever run into that? I can just leave. That's reason, one reason you and I should never play the lottery. What are you saying, Pastor? What are you and I going to do if we win? You and I are going to check out of the relationships that we've been mutually dependent on, that we've needed in order to continue on, in order to persevere. And uh, one thing, if you won, you wouldn't have to put up with any of us anymore. I can just move on, we'd say. You know, I, I used to think it was okay. Buy a ticket now and then. But I've been reformed. Um, besides, you know, if you really believe that God is in control, God is sovereign, God makes everything happen, you sure don't ever want to buy. If your theology is any good, you don't ever want to buy more than one. How many does God need? So never buy more than one if you are going to buy one. Maybe I just saved you 19 bucks. Um, no. Um, I Personally, I know there's no way that God is ever going to let me win anyhow. Absolutely not. Because uh, at the first negative comment on a sermon, I'd say, I'm out of here. I got 30 million bucks. I, no, I'd, I'd never last if I had a lot of money. I'd never last. Dependency... Codependency on others, that's good. That's good. Needing others, that's good. 
Jonah didn't feel he needed others. He was independent. He was trying to purchase his way out of this ministry obligation that he has. This is our remuneration. Um, Look with me at the middle of verse 3. Four key words. Middle of verse 3. Jonah paid the fare. You don't think that's there by accident, do you? You know, you should never skip over those little things in Scripture. Because unlike my sermons, God doesn't use filler. No, it's there for a reason. Jonah paid the fare, which introduces us to Jonah's third mechanism, his device for escape. It's going to be duration. Duration. Have you ever considered how long this trip would take? How much this fare would have cost? You know, we aren't talking a three-day Greyhound trip here to Cleveland. 59 bucks. That's not what we're talking about. Tarshish is an exceedingly long trip. Um, it would have necessitated living quarters, meals, probably some excursions at the ports along the way. I don't know, a zipline or something. Look at this. Listen again from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It is said of King Solomon from our scripture reading earlier. All of his drinking vessels were of gold, and all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver wasn't considered valuable in the days of Solomon. That's how rich he was. For the king had ships which went to Tarshish with servants of Haram, Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. Once every three years the Tarshish ships came with gold and silver and all kinds of exotic gifts. Why once every three years? Was it so so that, you know, King Solomon could scrape a little more money together, you know, and work it into the budget and and be ready when those ships arrived where he could afford it? Was it to find a way to pay for it? No. No, it was because once every three years, because of the numerous ports of call, because of the, um, the weather and the trade winds, the direction that they could go in these ships, three years is how long it took to sail from Joppa to Tarshish and back again. That's how long he's in for. And many historians tell us it would have taken at least a year to travel one way. And a lot of times when they get there, they have to wait for the winds and other things to shift so they can seasonally travel back again. That's why it takes potentially three years. The cost of the living quarters on a valuable merchant ship, a year's worth of meals, other expenses included, sleeping arrangements, it would have been a healthy sum of money. would not have been cheap. Um... The Bible doesn't say that Jonah got on as a stowaway. He didn't hire himself onto the ship as a laborer to help out. He, he wasn't promising the captain that, you know, when we get to Tarshish, I've got a friend there that's going to pay you. He sure didn't put on a visa card. No, the captain would have demanded the entire sum up front. Scripture says Jonah paid the fare. He wasn't a penniless prophet. And, and he had done quite well for himself over the years uh, serving Jeroboam II, the king. And uh, he thought, you know, what's, now that I'm on board, I'm going to get on board. Jonah thought that he was clear. He goes, I'm gone. I'm gone. 
And this wasn't a day cruise over to Freeport. In his mind, Jonah is putting at least three years between himself and coming back to Israel. At least three years before his return home. And that's even if he planned on returning to Israel. Which when we get into chapter 2 is in question. We'll talk about that. In rebellion against God, this all represents... Jonah's rebellion and his complete abandonment of the ministry that God had called him to. Completely turning his back on it and walking away. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah went down into the ship, I'm sure to find a nice quiet place to lay down, in order to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Tragic. I've got a couple photos here of what these ships would have looked like. Here's a drawing of a first one. You know, we often default to thinking of these ships back in the, in the biblical days as just being a little single sail uh, type fishing, open bottom fishing uh, vessel. Something like we might go out in, into the intercoastal. Uh, no, no. That wouldn't be accurate. The first drawing here is a Phoenician style ship. Uh, they were rounded on the bottom. They weren't a V-hole. They were rounded on purpose in order to provide more cargo space. Some of these got very, very large. You can see here that uh, this one has one row of oars on it. There were other larger vessels that had two rows of oars on it, one above the other. And there are very, very large vessels that had three rows of oars. What did they call that one? A trireme, Right? Some of these got very big. Um, but you can see the captain's quarters to the rear of the ship, the sail there in the front, and um, merchant ships had various compartments below. Some were quite spacious. These are big ships. The, the one that Jonah got on was at least this big. I'll show you a cutaway next, a view of a similar ship from a museum. There's the hull. Look at the people down there. And uh, this, again, would have been from a smaller ship with a single row of oars. It could hold a lot of cargo. A lot of stuff in the bottom there. A lot of compartments. Very large ships. Um, Some were impressive. And, and Jonah would have spent about a year there in one of those ships saying this, something like this to himself. You know, God surely has some more things he's going to do. But he, you know, he's going to have to find someone else. I'm wanting out. It's time to find a stable, more comfortable place for retirement. You know, if God really wants it done, he'll find somebody to do it. I'm headed to Tarshish. Going to take some time off. Well, God, God finds some other way to do whatever it is he's planning to do. But I'm not going to be involved. I'm not going to participate. I'm taking this ship for an extended vacation to Tarshish. And depending upon whether or not I like Tarshish, maybe I'll be back in three years. But I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to call the men forward so we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we all prepare our hearts, you might want to ponder to yourself these three things. Location. Changing places to avoid or eliminate involvement in God's ministry. Remuneration. Relying upon wealth 
instead of cooperating with God for what he is doing in his plan of redemption or duration. Just spending excessive amounts of time away, gone. Which device might you be using to distance yourself from what God is doing?